Hello and welcome back to Worst Church Ever, the progressive Christian podcast now 21 episodes in, including a scattershot of bonus episodes, and finally finishing up connecting the dots between week one of this year's narrative lectionary and week two. About that, the narrative lectionary is a four-year cycle of readings designed to take readers and congregations through just about all the major stories in Scripture. Each year's cycle goes from Genesis to Pentecost between September and the end of May. There are two problems with the narrative lectionary as I see it. One, it necessarily does a lot of skipping because it gives itself four years to hit all the major moments. So this coming fall, 2021, we go from Genesis 1 and 2 creation stories in the first week of the lectionary right to the sacrifice of Isaac in week two, 21 chapters later. Our plan for this podcast at first was to simply use the narrative lectionary as a tool for organizing our podcast schedule, recognizing that it's one of many such tools and that no tool is sacrosanct and that all lectionary style tools do some good things. One of the best things they do is deliver us away from sermon series about issues pastors think are topical or insightful or relevant. If you are a churchgoer, you see the problem with those. Scripture is so often put in service of the sermon and the conclusions the pastor has already reached instead of being taken on its own terms. The other good thing about lectionaries is that they often ask us to look at and be honest about Scripture we'd rather avoid. The bad thing about the narrative lectionary isn't so much that it skips huge swaths out of necessity, and we're more than happy to fill those in here on the podcast, but that it operates from the assumption that the Bible is, in fact, one narrative story. Well, actually, no, the real problem is that the narrative lectionary has decided what that narrative actually is based on theologies that Christians take for granted, theologies that sometimes do and often don't take Scripture on its own terms. Now, if you've listened to episode one, you know how we feel about all of that and why we feel the way we do. You know that we don't believe scripture needs to dictate faith, and you also know that part of what we're doing here is saying, look, if you believe that scripture has to dictate the terms of your faith and everybody else's, then at the very least, you need to take scripture as seriously as you say you do. That is to say, don't approach it with preconceived notions about what it must be. Notions that come from theological frameworks created by post-biblical thinkers and traditions. Just be consistent. If you believe that you must believe X, Y, and Z about Scripture before you can see God or come to know Jesus, ask yourself if the Scripture itself is where you got that idea. Spoiler alert, well, you get the picture. I love Scripture, but one of the reasons I still love Scripture is that it's full of mysteries and questions, and in my experience, it's full of surprises. For this podcast, I'm looking in depth at stories that I already know fairly well, and that I've believed different things about over the years. So, like everybody else, I'm bringing the hermeneutic of experience. Had I not recently read The Body Keeps the Score, would I be able to see the narratives of trauma and the, rece- and the repeating cycles of trauma in these stories? Probably not, or at least not in the same way. 
If I don't ask myself, what do these stories tell us about the way human beings understand their experiences with the ineffable, would I be able to ask if the stories and their inclusion in the canon aren't also about what people think about what people think about their experiences with the ineffable? Probably not. We talked about that in the last episode, the idea that terrible stories with God doing terrible things are all over the place in the Bible. But why? Maybe so we ask that very question, and maybe so we see that the so-called canon itself is forcing us to admit something about ourselves. Look what we think God is like, and look at how fucked up that is. Look at what people do in the name of God, and look how fucked up that is. Anyway, the next stop in the narrative lectionary is Genesis 27, so this time it's only skipping five chapters. Now, in the last episode, which we called Altar-Bound Isaac, Trauma-Bound God, we covered Genesis 22. Genesis 23 is about the death and burial of Sarah, but it's mostly a real estate document, document posing as a story. The authors want you to know that Abraham had certain bona fide claims in the land of the Hittites, and the Hittites recognized and honored that, that, those claims, and money changed hands, and everything was on the up and up. To understand why these kinds of stories are included in scripture, all you need to do is read the news. People are still killing each other over this stuff, and not just in the Middle East. Moving on to Genesis 24, which is the topic of today's episode, Genesis 24 is the story of Abraham's plans to find a wife for his son Isaac. It begins with a strange ritual. Abraham makes his servant swear that he won't find a wife for Isaac among the Canaanites, but that he will seek out Isaac's bride from among Abraham's own people. And that's going to require a journey back to where Abraham's kinsfolk live. The strange part is the manner in which the oath is sworn. I'm going to pick up here in verse 1 of chapter 24. It starts like this. Abraham was now very old. Now remember, this is after Sarah had died. Abraham was very old, and Yahweh had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in, this, in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. Now, all I really want to say here is that under my thigh is, according to many learned biblical scholars, a euphemism for something more like on my loins or on my testicles or on my genitals. Abraham, following some common custom, I'm sure, makes his servant swear to Yahweh on Abraham's own genitals. Genitals that signify life, progeny, the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise that Abraham was to be the father of a great nation. Yes, all of that. And it bears saying we're in the shadow of the motif of circumcision here. We're in the region juxtaposed to circumcision here. Remember, chapter 17 has Yahweh demanding a slave mark on his chosen people in their flesh from this very fount of blessing? You get the idea. In fact, some rabbinic traditions assert that the text is referring directly to the circumcised penis. Rabbi Moshe Lieb Halberstadt says, quote, according to Rashi, 
uh, now Rashi was a famous rabbi, based on the Midrash Rabbah, it does not mean literally the thigh, it means the mila, organ of circumcision. The reason is because one who takes an oath must hold in his hand a sacred object, such as a scroll of the Torah or, or phylacteries. Excuse me. And the circumcision was his, Abraham's, first commandment and came to him through suffering. And it was beloved to him, and therefore he chose it as the object upon which to take the oath. Now that's all uh, um, Halberstadt quoting from Rashi. So I'm kind of stumbling through that quote because, I mean, the idea that it's a Abraham's penis is a sacred object is, well, again, you get the picture. But I guess what I want to say here is it raises a whole lot of questions that we certainly recognize. Is this sexual abuse? I mean, it's a master demanding that a slave touch his genitals as a pledge of fealty and commitment to the master's agenda. I don't know how that would have registered to people in the Bronze Age in the ancient Near East, but I know what we think about it now. Now, some commentators do hold that putting one's hand under another's thigh, that language, that, that turn of phrase, is actually meant to be taken literally, that it's not the genitals, that the oath taker, always still a social inferior to the one being sworn to, allows the person demanding the oath, in this case Abraham, to sit on the oath taker's hand. And still, to our sensibilities, it's humiliating and still meant, even then, to assert dominance. Here, it's interesting to note the later Christian directive from James 5.12. Above all, my beloved, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under common condemnation. As Jimmy Dugan might say, that's good advice. As the rest of Genesis 24 unfolds, the servant, and now here we're going to call him Eleazar for the sake of clarity, following indications from Genesis 15 and making some assumptions, but Eleazar prays for direction, asking that he be able to know the right woman for Isaac by a specific set of acts of kindness. And he is shown precisely these acts of kindness and hospitality by Rebekah, and Eleazar takes this as a holy affirmation that she will be the one to marry Isaac. Rebecca and her family agree, and we're off to the chapel. Now, we could have a long conversation about what agency Rebecca actually had in all of this. The scripture does have, it does say Rebecca agreed, and you know the implication is that it was she was willing. But the scripture also has Eleazar putting a nose ring and, and special bracelets on Rebecca right there where he meets her before they even go back to her family. So, it's a little unclear to me who really has the agency here, but at least in the text, we have Eleazar asserting dominance over her, uh, but then her agreeing. So make of that what you will. We don't have a whole lot to go with there. I think it's interesting that we know this is a patriarchal society, but we also know that women throughout the scriptures, and especially in the Abraham cycles, do whatever they have to do to be able to claim for themselves some kind of agency. So... I don't know. But here's what's really interesting. These closing passages of the chapter, of chapter 24, uh, describe Isaac and Rebekah's meet cute. And it's something really interesting happens in that context. Now, here's the text picking up in verse 62. Now, Isaac had come from Ber Lahai Roy, 
for he was living in the Negev. He went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That's the end of the chapter. There's a lot going on there. If you've listened to episode 9, which we called Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, the the perpetuation of sexual trauma in Genesis 16, you might remember the place called Be'er Lahai Roy, or El Roy, a name for God meaning the God who sees or the God who has seen me. Friends, this is the well where Hagar, having fled from Sarah's mistreatment and pregnant by Abraham with Ishmael, was seen and met by God. God, Yahweh in the text, promises to make a great nation of Ishmael. In verse 13 of that chapter, chapter 16, begins like this. She gave this name to Yahweh who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. That's where we get the term El Roy, the God who sees. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I mean, I'm going to stop there. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful image, right? All kinds of problematic things are happening in Hagar's life, including the recorded interactions with with God, whether it's Elohim or Yahweh. But this is a beautiful moment. And then in verse 14, we have this. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Now, in the context of Genesis 24, Sarah, the one who trafficked Hagar to Abraham, only to abuse her into exile in the desert, pregnant and with no provisions, the same Sarah who later sees to it that both Hagar and her young son Ishmael are properly banished, this same Sarah has recently died. Isaac, Sarah's son, now a grown man, is doing two specific specific things according to this text. Number one, he's mourning Sarah. And number two, he is meditating in the field and by the well where Hagar first saw God and even more importantly, felt seen by God. Holy shit. In mourning his mother, Isaac has returned to the scene of her crimes against Hagar and against Isaac's own half-brother Ishmael, which is also the place where Hagar came to see God and felt seen by God. Hagar is the one who named the place Pierre Lahai Roy, the well of the one who lives and sees me. I can't say this enough. Holy shit. The body and the brain keep the score of trauma. We perpetuate trauma. You think Isaac wasn't traumatized when his parents banished his brother? You think he grew grew up not hearing the stories of how Sarah, his mother, abused Hagar into exile when Hagar was pregnant with that brother? Families are not that good at keeping secrets. I'm here to tell you, Omerta eventually breaks down. Isaac is grieving his mother, but he's also trying to come to terms with the fact that the mother he loved was also a broken, traumatized person who, in turn, traumatized others. And where does he go to meditate and work through this shit? He goes to the room where it happened, the scene of the crime, the well of the one who lives and who sees. 
And then Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother Sarah. And he married Rebekah, so she became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Holy shit. That's the end of the chapter, and that's the end of this episode. Thank you so very much for joining us. A few housekeeping notes as we sign off. We're now on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're also on Patreon if you'd like to support the production of future episodes and the growth of this podcast. Another great way to help us grow is just to share the episodes on your social media accounts. If you're worried about being outed as a heretic, I totally get it. But if you've got a parent or a grandparent or whoever else getting on your case because you don't go to church, you can always point in our direction and say, says who? Blessings to you today and always. And as always, thank you so very much. We'll see you soon.